Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in the Purgatorio, the second canticle of Dante's work behind Inferno. If you're just dropping in here, let me just say there are... (laughs) <laughs> hundreds of episodes on Inferno in season one of this podcast. You might want to go back there and check out where we've come from. You can walk with us right here, but we're <laughs> at a tough spot in Purgatorio. Canto four lines 52 through 75. Virgil and Dante have just made their first grand ascent and come up to the first ledge that runs around the mountain of Purgatory. And now they're going to rest for a bit. Or so you might think. Lines 52 through 75 of Canto 4. This is my English language translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Print it off, make notes, drop comments to me, continue the conversation. By the way, I should just add that I have often said that I am on Twitter. I am less and less on Twitter and about to be off Twitter forever because of problems on the social media landscape of that site. So you can find me on Instagram under my own name, Mark Scarborough, and you can even find a TikTok channel. Yes, it's true. The kids let me on TikTok called Mark Scarborough Writes. I do a poem a week from Dickinson to modern poetry to Wordsworth. For now, you can find me here with Purgatorio Canto 4, lines 52 through 75. The two of us sat down there to rest a bit. We were facing east, the direction from which we climbed, because it does you good to see how far you've come. First, I set my eyes on the shore below, then raised them to the sun above. I was astounded to see that its light hit us from the left. The poet saw how I was utterly baffled by that chariot of light, which now lay between us and the northern climbs. So Virgil said to me, if Castor and Pollux kept company with that mirror that moves its light both north and south, you'd see the zodiac's rosy glow positioned even closer to the bears, unless it was able to leave its old path. You'll have to want to think hard to know how this can be. Concentrate and imagine Zion stationed on the earth in relationship to this mountain so that they both have the same horizon, although in different hemispheres. Then you'll see that the road that Phaeton failed to drive to his misfortune has to pass the one on one side, then the other on the other side of that horizon, if you're able to apply your intellect's facilities. Passages like this one are the reason (laughs) that people hate Purgatorio and hate Paradiso even more. Don't hate it. We're here. We might as well unpack what's here. I want to talk about exactly what is the problem with the sun and why is it so confusing in this passage. We want to dig a little bit into Virgil's explanation of the sun's position in the sky and why it strikes them, quote unquote, from the wrong side. I know that's... So weird to a modern ear, but okay, let's just let it go. And while we're here, let's talk a little bit about this geocentric worldview. The first three lines. The two of us sat down to rest a bit. Now, surely there is a little bit of irony here because... 
because <laughs> this passage is not exactly restful. In fact, my guess is this passage kind of makes your eyes cross or your brain's eyes cross as you go through it. It seems so weird and far away. And you know what? I love it for that reason. I love it because it reminds us that this is a medieval poem and this is a long way away from us. This is no quantum physics universe. This is no AI universe. This is a geocentric universe. We're going to come back to that at the end of the podcast. But for now, let's just say that there's got to be a little bit of a nudge in the ribs with an elbow, right, for that sat down to rest. This is hardly a restful passage. They're facing east, the direction from which they'd climbed. And then that line, it does you good to see how far you've come. As you know from the last episode of this podcast, it's being stated in the third person. It does one good to see how far one has climbed. I've shoved it up into the second person in modern colloquial English. That's a little bit of a mistranslation there. But it gives you the feel of it because, again, what it does is it incorporates me into the journey. Just as when I'm hiking... I get to a ledge and sometimes I sit down and, you know, I have a trail bar and have a drink of water and look out at the view in the same way. Right. You take a little rest and you see where you're coming from. Why is this passage then not restful? Well, two reasons. One, Ptolemaic universe coming back to that. And two, and this is something we've touched on before, but I need to remind you of, in the medieval notion of the Mappa Mundi, the map of the world, of what the world looks like when it's laid out, or even what the globe looks like as it sits at the center of the universe, Jerusalem is the North Pole, <laughs> where you and I think about the top of the globe That is where Jerusalem is placed. In fact, there are flat two-dimensional maps made in the Middle Ages with Jerusalem at the top. And you can imagine Europe is all skewed and strange. Scandinavia is skewed and kind of to the side and upside down. It's all very bizarre if you were to flatten out the globe but put Jerusalem as the northernmost point, which means he's upside down right now. He's on the bottom of the globe, because here in this passage, we find out that Jerusalem and Mount Purgatory are opposite each other. Moving on in the passage, the next three lines. First, I set my eyes on the shore below, so the pilgrim looks way down to where those rushes were, the Virgil plucked and he got cleaned up with, you know, way down there at the bottom where the angel arrived with Casella and all the slows. And then he raises them to the sun above. It's a really nice little detail, a nice bit of naturalistic detail from the poet before we set into some very heady intellectual stuff. I was astounded, and here's the bit, to see that its light hit us from the left. Remember, I've told you that surprise is the nature of purgatory. Why? Because surprise cracks open open your ability to see because surprise cracks open your assumptions because surprise leads you to all and because for Dante all leads you to God. So surprise is the very nature of the game here and we are not then surprised. <laughs> that seems wrong, but okay. We are then not surprised that the pilgrim is surprised because the sun is hitting them from the wrong side. What does this mean? The sun is not in the southeast quadrant of the sky 
as it would be if he were back in the Italian peninsula. So it is in a northern part of the sky. It's in the wrong place. Why do they think this? Okay, think about the globe as the center of the universe. And the sun is rotating around the globe. Now remember, Jerusalem's at the top of this globe. So the sun is rotating in an elliptical orbit, kind of on a diagonal around the Earth. And when you get down here to Mount Purgatory, just to picture that sphere with a orbital pattern around it that's on, let's say, a 30 to 40 degree diagonal, when you get down here to the bottom, opposite Jerusalem, where Purgatory is, the sun's now on the other side. Dante, of course, doesn't know anything about Africa. He's never been to the Sahara. He's never been sub-equatorial in any way. So he's having to imagine what this must look like on the other side of a geocentric globe. The sun must not be in the right part of the quadrant of the sky. He's also picking this up from Lucan. Oh, it's a little bit of Lucan in the passage. There are two places in the Pharsalia. I'm telling you, it always comes back to the Pharsalia. There are two passages in the Pharsalia that are at play here in Book 3, lines 247 through 248, and then in Book 9, lines 538 to 539. In both, there are references to people who live sub-equatorial from the Northern European perspective, and that they see shadows on the opposite side. Again, this is a logical deduction made by people like Lucan who have never been below the equator and see a geocentric universe. In the Farsali, it's said that the Arabs come south to discover that the shadows of the trees fall on the other side than they expect them to. This is Again, super confusing for the modern mind to hold, but just try to hold it in your head. Again, go back to that picture of a globe, the elliptical diagonal orbit of the sun. Think about when the sun is up at the top of that near Jerusalem. Think then when it comes down, it must go kind of wrapping around the other side of Mount Purgatory. I know. It makes no sense. It only makes deductive logic sense if you accept the premise that the sun is rotating around a fixed earth. Moving on in the passage, the poet, Virgil, saw how he was utterly baffled by that chariot of light, which now lay between us and the northern climes. That's how I translated it. The word used there is aquilo, which means the north wind. I translated it as northern climes because the idea is how, it, how the sun lies between me and the north. Um, northern climes is not exactly the best translation of aquilo. I thought about just leaving it as what it is, aquilo, the name of the north wind. But I gave it this uh, kind of uh, rudimentary redraft. Virgil sees this distress in the pilgrim or this shock and comes back. If Castor and Pollux, that is the Gemini twins, if Castor and Pollux kept company with that mirror, why a mirror? Because the sun glows because it reflects the divine nature of of God and the creator himself. So the sun is a mirror reflecting back the creator. 
listen, even if you don't believe in God, just hold that in your brain for a second. It's kind of beautiful that the sun would be this reflection of the source of life. If the sign of Gemini were up and kept company with that mirror that moves its light both north and south, going around the globe on that diagonal, you'd see the zodiac's rosy glow. In other words, you'd see where in the zodiac the sun is positioned even closer to the bears, or as we might now say, the Big Dipper, although it's a larger constellation than just the Big Dipper, unless it was able to leave its old path. The zodiac is a belt of 18 degrees in breadth for Dante, and it extends nine degrees on either side of the sun's elliptical orbit. So the sun travels in this elliptical orbit and the 18 degrees surrounding the sun is the zodiac and the sun is in various houses of the zodiac. So what Virgil is saying is if it were late May or early June, if it was the time of Gemini, then you would notice that the sun's rosy glow is closer to what we would now say is the Big Dipper. He's calling it the Bears. Again, it's a larger constellation structure than just the Big Dipper. But you would see it there. Remember that the sun is currently in Aries, not in Gemini. We know that from Inferno, Canto 1, lines 38 through 40. And Virgil is saying, well, you know, listen, if it were later in the year, then it might be easier to figure this out because the sun would be closer to the very famous constellations of the bears or, as we would now reduce it to, the Big Dipper. Then Virgil goes on into the next and final nine lines. You'll have to want to think hard to know how this can be, Virgil says. It's already confusing enough, right? Good grief. Concentrate and imagine Zion's station on the Earth in relationship to this mountain so that both have the same horizon, although in different hemispheres. So in other words, picture the globe. I picture Jerusalem. And it's mountain. Zion is considered a mountain and Jerusalem's on the top of it. So picture Zion, that mountain up there at the top of the globe. Picture this one down here so that they both have the same horizon. Now, that's not really possible as you know the globe, right? Because you can't see the equator from Jerusalem nor from Purgatory nor from the Antipodes. But okay, let's just give it to Virgil. So they're exactly opposite each other and they have the same horizon, although in different hemispheres. See, it's a lie to think that medievals didn't know the Earth was round, nor that it had hemispheres. Not true. You know, there's so many myths about the Middle Ages that they covered rotted food with spices. That is just so not true. There's no evidence for that. It's a ridiculous misread from a scholarly book published in the early 20th century. Anyway, so many myths about the Middle Ages. Okay, passing on. Then you'll see that the road that Phaeton failed to drive was given the reins of the sun and drove off course and made a wreck of things. Failed to drive to his misfortune has to pass the one on one side, then the other on the other side of that horizon. That's the thing, right? That elliptical orbit. And so if it's going around in this ellipse and Jerusalem's sitting at the top and Mount Purgatory is at the bottom, it's going to pass toward, let's say, the right-hand side of Jerusalem, which means when it comes back around the bottom of the globe, it's going to be on the left-hand side of Mount Purgatory. That's what he's trying to say. But he says it by mentioning Phaeton wrecking the chariot. This is part of an ongoing Phaeton 
program in comedy. We have already seen Phaeton brought up. And remember, Phaeton's failed journey to take the horses of the sun and drive it across the sky is in direct contrast to Dante's successful journey, which will end in a completed poem and the vision of God. Phaeton is constantly brought up and we're constantly reminded that he overdid, overstressed, (laughs) failed to drive the sun, and that Dante is in fact the successful one. And in this passage that is so difficult to understand, it is so interesting that Phaeton comes up because we know that the pilgrim will be able to apply his intellect and figure out why it appears the sun is in the wrong quadrant on the other side of the globe. This is a great place to stop and talk about the Ptolemaic universe. Remember, we are in a geocentric universe. The sun is considered a planet in this universe, not a star. Essentially, it is wrong to call it the Ptolemaic universe. Ptolemy was a mathematician scholar in second century common era. But really what we're dealing with here is the Aristotelian universe, Aristotle, 4th century before Common Era. Aristotle sets out the notion of the geocentric universe, but Aristotle, and this is the key difference between Aristotle and Ptolemy, Aristotle cannot figure out why certain planets appear to move backwards, or as you know probably the term, go into retrograde. Why do certain planets look like they're traversing the wrong way momentarily and then go back to traversing the sky in the right way? In the second century common era, Ptolemy, this great mathematician scholar, wrote a treatise called the Mathematical Syntaxis. This was considered a groundbreaking treatise because Ptolemy was trying to do Aristotle one better. Ptolemy offered mathematical formulas to explain the retrograde motion of certain planets. And Ptolemy offered mathematical formulas to predict solar eclipses, and to predict those very retrogrades. This is what's so crucial. Ptolemy is taking the Aristotelian notion of the universe and putting it into mathematical formulas. <laughs> that, that's getting close to us, that you can somehow understand the universe through math. Ptolemy's book, The Mathematical Syntaxis, was ultimately called the Almagest. Why? Al is from the Arabic word for the, and majest is is Greek. It's uh, magiste, the best, the greatest. So the book gets this kind of subtitle, Almagest, combining an Arabic word and a Greek word to mean the greatest. Why? Because what circulates is an Arabic version of the Latin translation of Ptolemy's work, which is written in Koine Greek, the same Greek used to write the New Testament. This Arabic translation of a Latin version of the Koine Greek original is what they've got, and it's called the Almagest. That that all stays that way, basically, the Almagest, until Ptolemy's uh, original manuscripts, not in his hand, but the original 
Koine Greek manuscripts surface in the 1600s and are found, and it becomes the standard text. And by that point, Ptolemaic universal constructs are already falling apart. But, and this is what's crucial and just the edge of the discussion I want to start because we're going to talk about this endlessly all the way through parody. So the Ptolemaic universe, while it is Dante's concept of how the heavens work, is starting to crack. Ptolemy's mathematical formulas are proving not reliable. They are actually proving more difficult a solution, and they're beginning to crack under constant observation. Some people are reverting back to an Aristotelian original, which says that the world and the universe is not mathematically derived, and there may be evidence that Dante is with those people who are starting to break a little with Ptolemy. Now, Dante certainly makes use of the Almagest, and Ptolemy's astronomical figuring in both comedy and in other works like the Convivio. But there may also be signs, not in this passage, but ahead of us, of a crack in the system. We'll see this ahead of us. I just lay the groundwork here to, again, tell you here that Ptolemy is building off an Aristotelian foundation. I'm not going to read this passage again because I'm going to read it as a whole when we combine it with the next passage in the next episode of this podcast. So to get there in a, <laughs> in a ridiculously restful spot of mental gymnastics, you have to subscribe to this podcast, you have to rate it like it, do all those things that are necessary to keep the podcast being itself and on the air. I certainly appreciate your attempts to support this podcast and mostly I appreciate you for being on the journey with me. I love this stuff. How can you hate this in Purgatorio Paradiso? Not that you do, but how can people hate this? I think it's just fantastic. The mental gymnastics, I love it. It makes my brain hurt. It makes me unmodern suddenly. Who wouldn't want to do that for just a moment? I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.